I can still remember a, a hot summer night in 1969 under a starry Kansas sky. I was 14 years of age. And we stopped at a campground on our way to Wichita for my brother's wedding. And a whole group of us were gathered outside around a tiny nine-inch black-and-white portable TV. Although we were all held in rapt attention by what was on the screen, everyone occasionally looked up into the sky. You see, what we were watching live on that little screen was happening in the heavens. It was one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. To this day, I I can't look at the moon the same as I did before that night. In any given endeavor, there is something that is most important something that defines the enterprise for the Apollo missions. It was getting men to the moon. And safely back, I also vividly remember the tension of Apollo 13. Some of you might. If that great effort had not gotten men to the moon, if we didn't have three used cars up there, (laughs) the Apollo missions would have been pointless. In fact, we could say that getting to the moon defined the Apollo program. Any effort of any value can be defined by something that is a part of it. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Of first importance. Four things, all of which focus on the final item, the culmination, the definition. One, the life of Christ is tied to the Old Testament Scriptures, okay? Paul says it twice. Two, he died. Three, was buried. Four, The defining point, he was raised on the third day. This is the sign of the truth of the message of Christ. Not sure you believe me? Jesus said so. In fact, after performing numerous miracles, Jesus was accosted by some of the scribes and Pharisees. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. (laughs) Try your stuff, Jesus. Come on, give us some proof. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. One sign. Now don't misunderstand. Jesus did miracles both before and after this. But Just like getting people to the moon and back defined Apollo, so the resurrection defines Christianity. It is the sign. John records Jesus driving a bunch of guys out of the temple who were using God to get rich. It doesn't happen anymore, but it did back then. Uh, (laughs) 
And some of those same scribes and Pharisees took offense at that. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They didn't get it then. The disciples or the scribes and Pharisees. But after those hypocritical leaders had him killed, while his body was still where it had been buried, they realized how very important this was. The next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing a stone and setting a guard. They knew that if Jesus rose from the dead, or such an action was fake, the number of people following the teaching of Jesus and rejecting theirs would grow exponentially. And they were right. In fact, after Jesus did rise from the grave, they paid the guards to say, the disciples stole his body while we were asleep, which is how we knew it was them. Uh <laughs> It doesn't make much sense. But, you know, it was, it was clumsy, but it was the first attempt at undermining the truth of the resurrection. The story falls apart under the simplest of examinations like this. People all over the world die for what is a lie. Did you know that? All over the world, people die for what is a lie. We know that's true because Muslims die for what they believe. Hindus also. Buddhists and Christians and all those religions disagree. Somebody is dying for a lie. So let's say the disciples did steal Jesus' body and then claimed he rose from the dead. They were all systematically executed, with the possible exception of John, because they refused to admit to the conspiracy. They refused to deny that Jesus rose from the dead. The point? People may die for a lie. But nobody dies for what they know is a lie. After about 1,700 years, believe it or not, it took that long, people started to come up with other theories as to why the apostles would believe Jesus rose from the dead enough that they would give their lives for this belief. The wrong tomb theory. The women and then the disciples went to the wrong tomb and they found it empty, so they figured Jesus rose from the dead. Hello, all the bad guys had to do was go to the right tomb and pull out the body of Jesus and the whole movement would have died right then and there. The swoon theory, that's another popular one, you see. The professional executioners almost killed Jesus, but not quite. So, after hanging on a cross for hours, losing prodigious amounts of blood, being stabbed in the side to the point where his pericardium, at least, was pierced, He was then wrapped tightly in cloths with 75 pounds of spices, as per Jewish custom, and placed on a rock shelf in a cold cave which was then sealed up to keep in the stench of death. 
obviously also keeping out fresh oxygen. Oh, but not to worry. By Sunday morning, Jesus was all better now. And he got up and he rolled a 500-pound stone out of the way and then went and appeared to the apostles looking so strong they realized he must have risen from the dead and was surely the Lord of glory. I'm sure, you know, we've all seen people recover from such serious injuries like that. I mean, really? Three days? Come on! There's one sign that defines Christianity. Well, what is a miracle, a sign? What? What is it? It is that which cannot occur in the natural. It must have a supernatural cause. It's impossible for Jesus to have risen from the dead. People don't come back alive once they're dead. That's the whole point. Yes, we know that. Obviously that's true. That's the point. And it is absolutely critical to our faith. The sign. All right, let's go back to the letter we started with, the text inspired by God that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. The first section with which we want to deal speaks about the futility of Christian belief without the resurrection. Give it up. It isn't worth anything. First, we find out that there were some who wanted to call themselves Christians who did not believe Christians would raise from the dead one day. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? No resurrection, no gospel, no good news. Why? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Pretty simple. If nobody else can be raised from the dead, why would you say Jesus was? And, if that's the case, what's the point of anyone saying they're a Christian? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There's no point. There's no point in teaching of Christ, in believing in him. There is no power in Christ. And we're a bunch of liars. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You know what Paul's saying? Quit playing games. Either this resurrection thing is real or it's not. Get all in or get out. That's what he's saying. <laughs> because there is no real answer to the problems of the world without the resurrection. There is no answer. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And not just you. All your loved ones that have gone on before you, there's no hope. Then those who have all fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It's all over if there's no resurrection. You really will be just pushing up daisies. Nothing but worm food. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are pitiful if there is no resurrection. You might as well eat, drink, and be happy for tomorrow we die if there's no resurrection. Party hardy, go for the gusto. Because once you die, nothing's going to happen but decomposition. There's this cemetery outside a church in Vienna. So in the early 1800s, this pastor's standing in the doorway and he sees a group of the people that are coming to choir practice. 
they draw close to a new grave and they start making strange, surprised expressions. They, they kind of walk toward the grave and they, their eyes pop open wide and they scream and start on a dead run for the church. They push right past the pastor, crying and sobbing, and he's about to go in and see what's the matter when he hears more screams. Same play, same expression, same reaction. When the third group does this, he says, okay, I better go find out what's happening here. When he gets close to the gravestone, he starts to hear strange music, and as, as he draws near yet, he realizes the sound is coming from the grave. It startled him so much, he almost runs himself. But then he notices the tombstone. Ah. He goes into the church and says, people, people, it's okay, I can explain what's happening. And they all look at him, fear in their faces. Didn't you notice whose grave that is? They all shake their heads. The music is just backwards. Symphonies being played backwards. They clearly still don't get it. The grave is Beethoven's blank stare. It's just Beethoven decomposing. Sorry. <laughs> I always love that joke. <laughs> well, we don't just decompose, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead. And in like manner, so will we, all we who believe. Paul, now, he goes into some detail at one point, exclaiming, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Very exciting reading. But today, we want to skip that and get to the method of resurrection. How does this actually work? But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? They're dead. <laughs> what are they going to do? Come back like zombies with decaying flesh falling off, you know, here and there? I mean, what? Even if you make their bodies new, if they didn't work well enough to keep them alive the first time, how would it ever be good enough for eternal life? You foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. The first point Paul makes is there can be no harvest if the seed remains a seed. Point two, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. You know, farmers don't plant a seed expecting it to become one big seed. You know, they don't expect to walk out and see a five-foot-tall wheat seed. You know, that's not what they're looking for. They expect the seed to grow into a plant. Now, he expands this argument by analogy with examples from the first creation, the one we live in. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. So, in a sense, God has already done what he is going to do. For not all flesh is the same, for there are one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. With all that God has done here, is it so hard to believe that he will do even more in the new creation? And now Paul moves from the natural to the spiritual, the heavenly. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. 
What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Perishable to imperishable. Dishonor to glory. Weakness to power. Paul takes this description. He gives the before and after short names. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. That which is imperishable, glorious, powerful is that which has its origin in the spiritual. But the word translated here, natural, means soulish. Sometimes used by New Testament writers to mean worldly or unscriptural, unspiritual, I should say. And please note, both the natural and spiritual are bodies. We aren't going to be some disembodied souls floating around in some ethereal existence. That's not it. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Let's just stop here for a second. In that section we skip, Paul points out that the first man, Adam, was made from the dust of the earth. Then he calls Jesus a second, in fact, the last, Adam. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Just as Adam was a man, so was Jesus. So is Jesus. His humanity is as much the issue as his divinity. Both are in this. It's not about the nature of his humanity, but its origin. When Jesus rose from the dead, the cause was heaven, the spiritual. This is why his glorified body is imperishable, glorious, and powerful, as opposed to the first Adam and, and all his progeny, us. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The man of heaven. Is he only saying Jesus is the person of the Son? Is that it? Is it because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Or is it because his resurrection was beyond the merely natural? That it was, in fact, supernatural, spiritual, from heaven. Could it be that we too, those of us who are of heaven, are sealed by the Spirit to eternal life? I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Mere humans have no possibility of resurrection at all, certainly not everlasting life. But as God's children, we will inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. We will be immortal. Not because of any great thing in us, but because we will follow the man of heaven. As he was resurrected, so shall we be resurrected. 
we who have no hope but to rot in the grave, (laughs) to perish, will instead find ourselves shouting in triumph at his side when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? When the perishable puts on the imperishable, this will happen. Then we will shout, Death is swallowed up in victory. Then... It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) It is still true. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sin in which we, the people of the dust, abide leads inexorably to death. The law, which so clearly outlines the path to death. Both these are overwhelmed with the victory of Jesus Christ over the grave. How now shall we live? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Stand in the faith. Be immovable in your assertion that Christ rose from the grave. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. Jim Elliot, who would soon give his life for the cause of Christ, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Our labor is not in vain. Not in vain, as our work would be if there was no resurrection. We cannot keep our lives here. In all probability, these bodies will end up in a grave and they will decay. They will see corruption. But we cannot lose our resurrection. We cannot lose eternal life. Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. In the last year or so, I've been involved in eight funerals. I I think I counted eight. Some great saints like Anne and Arlene who love God with all their hearts for a lifetime to a child whose life could be counted in days. How do we deal with that? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. But you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The resurrection of Jesus leads to our resurrection. All we have to do is believe. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grasp resurrection. Admit that without help our sin leads to death. Believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and can and will bring you into imperishable, glorious, powerful resurrection with him. If you commit your life to him as Lord. Grasp resurrection and join us for an eternal celebration. Father, thank you so much. It is amazing and some of the pictures you give us in the Bible of the celebration that will last forever. I know we can't even begin to understand it. We had more hope of knowing what our life would be here when we were in the womb than we do understanding now what we will have there. And there it will be glorious. It will be imperishable. It will be in power. There we will finally have life like it's supposed to be. But we're here now. So help us, Lord, to somehow bring this message to people. Admit, believe, commit. We can only bring people to that point. They too can celebrate with us forever. We love them dearly, Lord. Help us to lead them to you. Thank you that you have given us so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.